Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They take care of our air conditioning, do a great job. I hope you'll find out more by visiting the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Lifeinnaples.net is the website. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about tort reform. Andy Joppas, professor, is also the author of Josephus of Oz. Andy will be joining us, as well as Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture and author of several books, including How Everything Happened, Including Us. It is March the 31st, the last day of March, can you believe it? On this day in 1889, the Eiffel Tower was dedicated in Paris in a ceremony presided over by Gustave Eiffel, the tower's designer, and attended by the French Prime Minister and a handful of dignitaries and 200 construction workers. In 1889, to honor the centenary of the French Revolution, the French government planned an international exposition and announced a design competition for a monument to be built uh, where it is right now today. Out of more than 100 designs submitted, the Centennial Committee chose Eiffel's plan of an open lattice wrought iron tower that would reach almost 1,000 feet above Paris and be the world's tallest man-made structure. Eiffel, a noted bridge builder, was a master of metal construction and designed the framework for the Statue of Liberty that had recently been erected in New York Harbor. Eiffel's Tower was greeted with skepticism from critics who argued that it would be structurally unsound and indignation from others who thought it would be an eyesore in the heart of Paris. Unperturbed, Eiffel completed his great tower under budget in just two years. Only one worker lost his life during the construction, which at the time was pretty remarkable. The light, airy structure was, by all accounts, a technological wonder and within a few decades became regarded as an architectural masterpiece. The Eiffel Tower, 984 feet tall and consists of iron framework supported on four masonry piers from which four columns arrive that unite to form a single vertical tower. Platforms, each with an observation deck, are three levels. Uh, elevators ascend the piers on a curve, and Eiffel constructed the Otis Elevator Company, or contracted them, uh, in the United States to design the tower's famous glass-caged elevators. They weren't completed in time on March 31st, however, so Gustav Eiffel ascended the tower stairs with a few hardy companions and raised an enormous French tricolor on the stru uh, structure's flagpole. Fireworks were set off from the second platform. Eiffel and his party descended, and an architect addressed the guests and about 200 workers. In early May, the Paris International Exposition opened, and the tower served the entrance gateway to the fair giant uh, giant uh, event. The Eiffel Tower remains the world's tallest man-made structure until the completion of the Chrysler Building in New York in 1930. Incredibly, the Eiffel Tower was almost demolished when the International Exposition's 20-year lease on the land expired in 1909, but its value as an antenna for radio transmission saved it. It remains largely unchanged today as one of the world's premier tourist attractions. Better watch your uh, wallet, though, if you go there. I have a good friend that went there and actually got pickpocketed while he was uh, visiting the Eiffel Tower. Well, Joe Biden on Monday said he shared the sentiment of CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, who warned of impending doom with the COVID case trajectory. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential, and so much reason for hope. But right now, I'm scared, Walensky said, of the virus with a 99.98% survival rate. President Biden said he shares the sentiment of the CDC director, who said earlier today that she senses impending doom. That's what our president thinks, impending doom. Well, the left is making a big push yet for another few weeks of lockdown because several states like Michigan and Pennsylvania have experienced a mild surge in cases in the last week or so. We're also opening too early. It's a warning from the White House and from the media Biden made an impassioned plea Monday. Come on, man. 
or states that lifted the mask mandates to reimpose them. Here's the problem with the narrative. COVID is rising in universally masked northern states, and those with many cases have had the strongest lockdowns. In the south, where most states are open and where the mask mandates have been lifted, COVID cases are still falling. So what kind of science would deduce from this, we need more lockdowns? <clears throat> Makes no sense. Well, I found this to be something I thought of, and I uh, don't have the energy right now to implement it, but Florida residents who oppose mask mandates due to the COVID-19 man- pandemic are trying to organize a large protest and mask-burning event next month. You're invited to the Million Maskless March and Mask Burning, Saturday, April the 10th, 3 p.m. at the corner of A1A in Las Olas and Fort Lauderdale, said Chris Nelson, the organizer of the protest. Now, Nelson added that April 10th marks one year of mask tyranny in Broward County, and we will mark that date with Celebration of Freedom. The event dubbed the Million Maskless March, I love it, and mask burning will be held on that date in Fort Lauderdale, he said. Authorities have given him permission. Nelson also said the city of Fort Lauderdale has contracted or uh, was contacted for comment. The mask burning is in full cooperation with local law enforcement and will be done in a safe and controlled manner. Following the mass burning, we will march north on A1A, make a sharp left on the sea breeze, and march back to where we began. The event will be over by 5 p.m., he said. And he's encouraging people to bring signs like saying, uh, mask our slavery, no more masks, mask off children, and no vaccine passports. This is great. <laughs> I'm just I'm really encouraging him on doing this. I hope we'll see other th- events like this across the state of Florida. This is interesting. New data shows vaccines stop asymptomatic infections. The trials were not designed to answer that question, but uh, which led to many so-called experts taking the illogical view that unlike other vaccines, people would still catch and transmit the virus after being vaccinated. Hence, the mass and distancing should remain indefinitely, of course. Now the CDC has published real-world data from about 4,000 health workers who were in December uh, round of vaccinations who were tested regularly. And they're uh, found at 80% reduction in PCR positives after one shot and 90% after two. In other words, they can't spread the virus. That's good news. Let's get those masks off the kids. Well, the White House reiterated on Monday that it would, when it comes to the migrant surge at the United States-Mexico border, Vice President Kamala Harris is handling the root causes in the region and engaging with the government directly, and it is not engaged in the asylum process. In other words, there's been some confusion over that, the White House press secretary said. Border security and temporary housing of asylum seekers remain under the purview of the Department of Homeland Security and Department of Health and Human Services, Pisaki said, adding this will be a diplomatic process. Sounds to me like Kamala told Joe to, old Joe to go shove it. She's not going to do it. <laughs> so she wants to look up the root causes. We know what the root causes are. We have been doing this for a long time. We, all, we have all that information. They're just dragging their feet, in my opinion. Well, the White House Press Secretary Jim Psaki on Tuesday defended in-person learning for illegal aliens in San Diego while most schools in the same county remain closed. Can you imagine that? In Joe Biden's America, illegal aliens come first and Americans are second-class citizens. According to San Diego's uh, Supervisor Jim Desmond, the San Diego County Board of Education will be sending teachers for in-person learning for illegal alien migrant children at the convention center. The illegal aliens will be learning in person while many schools in San Diego, San Diego County are still closed for in-person lear- learning. More than 500 unaccompanied minor migrants most of whom from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, were flown from Texas to San Diego over the weekend to, t- to shelter at the San Diego Convention Center. Can you believe that? I would be so upset if I were a taxpayer in San Diego County paying my school taxes and seeing them see the schools closed to uh, citizens and open to uh, illegal immigrants. Just think about that. That's unbelievable. Kentucky Governor Andy Bershear, who of course sent his kids to private schools, vetoed HB 563, which would allow families to choose a public school of their choice and make $25 million in education opportunity accounts available for low-income families 
to choose private schools. Yesterday, the State House and Senate overrode that veto with an angry convoy of teacher union reps outside the Capitol. The House voted 51 to 42 and the Senate 23 to 14. School choice is on the march. It's great to see. Over he, uh, they overrode his uh, veto. And so there will be school choice in Kentucky. That's great news. By the way, states like Florida and Texas with Republican trifecta, control of House, Senate, and governorship, have an average unemployment rate of 2.8 percentage points, lower than that the states with Democratic trifecta, like California and New York. That is, states with total Democrat control of their state governments have a 62% higher unemployment rate than states with, with uh, Republican control. Makes a lot of sense. So much for progressive, progressivism being uh, pro-worker. Certainly anything but these days. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to visit with Bob Levy. He's the chairman of the Cato Institute. We're talking about tort reform, that and more, right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Hey, I hope you'll check out Choice Social. It's a new and refreshing social networking platform. You can find out more by visiting choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andy Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy, as I mentioned before the break. He's the chairman of the Cato Institute. He's also a constitutional scholar and author. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Terrific organization, a great website as well. So, Bob, a uh, big issue in Florida is tort reform. 
And uh, I know that the uh, legislative bodies uh, in Florida right now are looking at this issue. What is tort law, and how does it differ from, say, the uh, contract law? Uh, tort law should be limited to resolving disputes over injuries between strangers. That is, people who had no opportunity to negotiate with each other in advance. The obvious example is a pedestrian who's injured by a negligent driver. Uh, they didn't meet before the accident uh, to discuss who would pay and under what circumstances. Contract law is different. It's it's designed for transactions between people who do have an opportunity um, before any any injury occurs to talk about the terms that are going to govern their relationship. So contracts can be drafted to specify who bears how much risk and what will be done in the event of uh, an unexpected occurrence. So a doctor and a patient, for example, can agree up front on the quality of care, the definition of negligence, and what remedies there will be if problems arise. And, And typically what happens in a contract, if the patient bears more risk or if the doctor provides a little less uh, care than the price of the procedure is reduced uh, accordingly. Yeah. So when when the people are able to bargain, they agree to terms that define their contact, uh, their conduct. And uh, when they do that, you know, it's essential that the courts allow that to happen. Uh, if, if a patient benefits from a reduced price in return for waiving his right to sue for malpractice, for example, unless there's gross negligence or some kind of intentional injury, the court really ought to to honor that waiver and enforce it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's an affront to uh, personal autonomy and individual responsibility. Uh, Tort law, however, you can't honor a private deal because the parties didn't have an opportunity to structure one. Yeah, no deal in the first place. So, So do we need tort reform? Well, you remember back uh, some years ago, the Florida jury somehow conjured up punitive damages of $145 billion uh, for a class of uh, tobacco plaintiffs. And a California jury, <clears throat> they they had a $28 billion verdict for a single claimant. Um, and the four cigarette companies agreed in the, in the grandmother of all awards to a quarter-trillion-dollar settlement to reimburse for uh, smoking-related Medicaid costs. So, And it's not just tobacco, but guns and asbestos and uh, really a cross-section of American industry that sort of morphed into this mass tort monster, DDT and lead paint and Benedictine, uh, the Dalkon Shield, the breast implants, FenFen, you know, litigation costs have grown about four times faster than the overall economy. As the Chamber of Commerce estimated that the cost of the tort system is more than $800 uh, per person each year. Wow. That's the equivalent of a 5% tax on wages aggregate. It's about a quarter of a trillion dollars. Wow. And the CBO said, you know, about $41 billion in savings over 10 years if there were some limits on jury awards just for pain and suffering. So that's uh, quite a quite a burden, and that's why we do need tort reform. And no question. So how does Florida's tort law regime stack up against, for example, other states? Well, in, uh, just three years ago, the uh, American Tort Reform Association um, said that Florida was the number two judicial hellhole uh, for tort litigation, second only to uh, California. Uh, the quote was, uh, Florida has not only experienced a series of devastating hurricanes, but also a storm of unsound decisions from the Florida Supreme Court that have damaged the state's civil justice system. So we ain't, you know, plaintiff's lawyers were sort of wrecking havoc. Yeah. And um, the Republicans, despite their their professed uh, desire to reform tort law uh, didn't do a darn thing about it. And the excessive tort costs to the Florida economy were something close to $8 billion annually and uh, hundreds of thousands of jobs. But then came 2019, and there was a significant change in the Florida Supreme Court's membership. 
as well as the state's uh, legislative leadership. And the American Tort Reform Association now has praised Governor DeSantis for making tort reform a top priority uh, since taking office, and Florida is, happy to say, no longer on uh, ATR's list of what they call their judicial hellholes. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Uh, that's great news. Just on a personal level, I'll say that I was calling on behalf of a not-for-profit uh, during during the hurricane, and uh, it was one of these, uh, you know, call this number and see if you qualify for relief. So I called the number, and they said, and he gave you a couple of things like, uh, well, did you make less money last year than you made the year before? And I said, uh, no, actually, we made more. He said, well, go ahead and file a case and just go ahead and give us your information. In other words, yeah. he created it, in my opinion. In my opinion, he was basically saying, and we don't care whether you need, whether you qualify or not. Let's get your name on the list and see if we can get you some money. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's the kind of tort uh, regime that I think leads to abuses and ultimately redounds to the detriment of uh, of everybody, yeah. consumers included. Yeah. So is the federal government constitutionally authorized to enact tort reform? Well, they say they are through the what they call the Commerce Clause. Um, when the country was younger and was growing, uh, there were some folks who believed that many of its problems required <clears throat> national regulatory solutions, so Congress... Um, tried to identify a specific constitutional power to justify these federal regulations, and the, the Commerce Clause was the uh, the vehicle of, of choice. But, mm. you know, the, the purpose of the Commerce Clause uh, was, was quite different. <clears throat> Under the Articles of Confederation, the national government didn't have the power to regulate commerce, and so each st- state was free to impose... Uh, tariffs on quote and quotas on goods coming across state lines, and the Commerce Clause was intended to stop that. Um, so now we have these outlandish jury verdicts, and they drive up insurance premiums, and they cause doctors to curtail services. And uh, there's no doubt that that happens in more than one state. So you could say that there's a tort problem nationwide, but not every national problem is a federal problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, state legislatures and the courts and and doctors and their patients are not without power. And there are more than three dozen states that have passed uh, damage caps, and all fifty states uh, have either passed or are they are considering uh, some various tort reform proposals. So we're better off keeping the federal government uh, having a minimum role in this. I, I would certainly agree, especially. Uh, considering uh, our governor and uh, our state legislature and the way they look at things, I think they'll come up with some pretty good uh, solutions. Uh, Bob Levy, again, the chairman of the Cato Institute, I encourage you to visit the website cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andy Joppa, Andrew Joppa's professor. He's also the author of Josephus of Oz. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golf Shore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape 
by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And as you just heard, a new performing arts center in downtown Naples. You can find out more by visiting the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell from the uh, Dowd Professor at the University of Houston. Right now, we have with us Professor Andrew Joppa. He is an author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning, Bob. I always look forward to your commentary uh, talking about uh, cultural uh, influences. And right now, we have the George Floyd trial starting with some expectation of... Uh, uh, violence and some sort of uh, social reaction. What are your thoughts? Well, I think the violence, especially if there is a an acquittal of any sort, uh, is going to be dramatic. It will resemble, perhaps in uh, in, in multiple factors, the, the Rodney King uh, uh, aftermath in which dozens were killed during rioting. Um, I think the interesting thing from a societal point of view is that the the major element of this George Floyd trial will not even be discussed at the trial. So what am I talking about? I am, I am saying that the, the fact that uh, Chauvin's actions towards Floyd are automatically presumed to be within this process uh, of, of a racist origin. And uh, ultimately, that is the major cons consideration surrounding this George Floyd death. Uh, it, it highlights another issue which has been uh, fairly well documented that as a society moves closer and closer to social justice, what they start to use more and more are anecdotes to illustrate the larger point because they can't prove the larger point. Uh, and what I'm suggesting here is that the George Floyd death will be presented, accepted automatically uh, as a racist incident, and it will therefore be extended to document the entire world of systemic racism particularly as it pertains to the police. Now, if we look at a, a juror who could be seated, who would be willing to be seated uh, on this jury, uh, considering the aftermath in which you can almost guarantee their names will be released, and these people are going to be uh, presenting the possibility of an acquittal verdict, um, it's, it's hard to imagine that happening. So uh, this trial, I think we have to watch as it unfolds. But again, as I said at the earlier part of the statement, uh, the most important part of this will not even be discussed, and that is the presumption that this was a racist incident, which cannot be documented in any way, Bob. Yeah, that's such an interesting point of view. I'm sure there will be that reaction. However, and I've forgotten his name now, but uh, the uh, uh, attorney general in Minnesota uh, said that— Ellison. Ellison, thank you. Yes, said, I basically said, you know what, uh, I'm not sure we have a case— I mean, the guy was supposed to be dead, according to how much um, uh, uh, fentanyl he had in his system. So, uh, you know, there is such a strong defense in this case. I just, I wonder exactly what the, the verdict might end up being. Well, I'm optimistic that, uh, well, no, I'm not optimistic. I, I would hope, let's put it that way, uh, that the jury will understand that the, uh, the death of George Floyd uh, has not in any way been documented as a result of Chauvin's actions, regardless of how egregious they may have seemed to be in that nine-minute video. Mm -hmm. uh, the death was related to fentanyl abuse and to uh, existing health problems. Uh, he was already having breathing difficulties before uh, the police came onto the scene. At least they were. he identified that he had breathing problems when they did come on the scene. Uh, but again, to, to believe that a juror 
is going to come in with an acquittal uh, decision. Uh, when it's, you can almost guarantee the press will get their names out to the larger public. And with the violence uh, existing in Minnesota uh, historically now, and I'm sure will will occur after this this verdict, especially if it's an acquittal. Um, I, I just have doubts that justice will be served in this situation, Bob. So interesting. Uh, let's move on to what's happening in our society right now. We're watching the Biden administration and their position. It's kind of interesting to me that Joe Manchin's wife was offered a $166,000 a year position. Uh, just, I guess none would call it graft. But uh, quite frankly, I don't know what the Biden administration is trying to do, whether they're trying to get him to sign on for uh, the nuclear option getting rid of the 60% requirement or signing on for statehood for Washington, D.C., or packing the court, whatever it might be. But somehow, some way, looks to me like they're trying to influence uh, Joe Manchin to uh, to make decisions. Well, yeah, I think we can take this out of the hypothetical that they're trying to influence Joe Manchin and say, obviously, they are trying to influence <laughs> yes, Joe Manchin. Yeah, uh, right now, with his, uh, his, his wife receiving a high-paying uh, federal job, uh, it, it, the, I think... It is so blatant that it's actually surprising that it would be uh, so overt in its implication, uh, which, again, I think goes to uh, uh, illustrate the, uh, that there is a growing boldness within the Biden administration as it pertains to the positions they're taking. They're, they're no longer even trying to be subtle. In, in how they're trying to influence the outcome of the uh, congressional process, the House, the Senate. Uh, or ultimately the election itself with H.R. 1, uh, with the description of uh, people who support voter IDs as being blatant racist, uh, merely because they want the voter to identify themselves. And of course, this theme has been carried forward by, by the media that any attempt, any attempt to uh, in any way make this vote legal, which is the primary characteristic of a good vote, not ease of voting, but the, the, the legality of voting, any attempt to make it legal, Bob, will in fact be positioned as an attempt to uh, suppress minority votes. And uh, it's going to be very hard to escape from that because the media is is 110 percent behind that particular absurd point of view. Yeah, I know. And you're exactly right. And of course, uh, the Biden administration is all over that, uh, saying that basically it's voter suppression. Kind of interesting to me, I don't know if you saw this, but apparently they've approached the National Black Justice Coalition, approached uh, Augusta National Golf Club, uh, saying that they should get rid of the name The Masters, <laughs> because it has <laughs> slave implications and so forth. I think, I think, quite frankly, they're taking on the wrong group, because you know what, uh, this, uh, the Augusta National Golf Club, is, they've, they've been in this situation before, and they'll stand strong. They, they are they are tough. I mean, you have to give them the credit. You know, with some exceptions in the past, they they have stood strong. Bob. Absolutely. Andy, we have so much more to talk about. Can you stick around? I will be here, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. You 
listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board. One of the many programs they have is creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative. And you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have with us again Andy Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to be with you, Bob. So, Andy, I understand there's a must-read book that you have on your shelf that you'd like us like to discuss. Well, it's a book by Douglas Murray. It's called The Madness of Crowds, uh, Gender, Race, and Identity. Uh, it's been out for several years now. I had read it originally about a year ago. Excuse me. And um, recently, Douglas Murray was on with with Tucker Carlson uh, discussing the book. He went on to the uh, the extended Tucker Carlson on Fox Nation. Uh, he's a fascinating man. He's a young man, only 41, but he's been around as a major uh, intellectual force for perhaps 15 uh, years at this point. So uh, quite, a, quite a, an amazing intellect as far as I'm concerned. And in the madness of crowds, gender, race, and identity, he talks about uh, we've entered into a new religion, and the religion is social justice. And uh, as with every religion, it has to have a Satan, it has to have a devil, and in this case, it's the straight white male. Uh, so what we're talking about uh, with uh, Douglas Murray's book, which is a very extended presentation, but very readable, and this is a book that uh, uh, does not require an advanced degree to, to understand the concept. He does a great job with that. Uh, but right now, we're in a variation of asymmetric warfare as started by the, uh, primarily the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School of, of, of Marxist thought is built on dividing the society against itself. And certainly, we, we've seen that. He documents that uh, time and time again. Uh, and again, the basis for power uh, is, the, uh, is the use of the, uh, the, the victimology model. And in our society, and, and Murray discusses this, uh, victimology is the major characteristics that we have. Uh, no longer is it bravery or heroism or any of these uh, these uh, well-documented virtues. It is now victimology. And the degree of victimology, how much of a victim are you, uh, is defined by something called intersectionality. Now, we've talked about that briefly in the past. Intersectionality is the overlapping of victimhood status. So, if you're a black, that is one level of victimology. If you're a black woman, that's another, a black disabled woman, and so forth. Uh, and the only people that are gaining the right to speak in our society, and you can see it happening now, uh, are those that, that are victims. Now, one of the problems, uh, as, as Murray describes it, uh, when someone comes at you from their position of victimology, the presumption in their minds, as documented by psychologists, is, since they've experienced so much pain in their lives, they have no concern with the amount of pain they cause in yours. So here we have a, a society that is being, uh, being created with intent to divide us. Uh, it is happening. I think there's no doubt that the, that, that, that point can be well documented. Uh, it brings up even the, the larger issue, which is very self-discussed. Can the races even live together? I think historically... Uh, the answer is yes. I think white America has tried to do everything in its power to try to make this an accommodating, accepting, unifying, justice-bound society. But right now, with the influence of the, of the Frankfurt School and their intent to divide us, uh, it has become dubious whether or not we can have a, uh, a, a racially bicameral, let's call it society, yeah. uh, especially one in which 
whites will be seen as even the equals of blacks. There will be a, a, a growing uh, a growing pressure from the uh, from the left uh, to have a a black victimology based society, and that is what we're seeing right now. Uh, so let me just re repeat my my one disclaimer. I believe that there's the races should be able to live together. There's no inherent reason why they shouldn't. But with the artificial intrusion of this victimology status and the division associated with it, uh, that position becomes dubious. Uh, if we look at most of the world conflicts in which a thousand people have died in the last 30 years, approximately 96% of those have been internecine battles uh, be because of religion or ethnicity in the country themselves, mm. not against external enemies. So what are we creating here? A victimology division uh, in which whites will be seen as the victimizer that will uh, further divide us. Uh, and again, it's impossible to predict that we will escape from this without comparable forms of violence that have been seen worldwide over the last 30 or 40 years, and certainly before that. Bob. Wow, that is a uh, scary uh uh, prediction and scary thought. You know, I must say, though, uh, you know, I'm confident that a lot of folks are going to see through this. I mean, uh, the vast majority of likely voters uh, requiring saying, uh, requiring a, a voter ID, for example, in order to stop voter fraud, they, they're on board. 77% favor this, and 61% of blacks say that they, they would uh, support having voter ID. So that somehow, some way, the left is carrying the, you know, this is back to Jim Crow. They're carrying these messages, but I'm not sure. I'm, a lot of people are just seeing through this. It's so evident that it's, it's, uh, it's phony baloney. I, I, I'm not diminishing what you're saying, Bob, but I think that is a, an old American model. And when I say old, I don't mean it's inappropriate or not accurate. I'm saying that it's no longer, it's no longer operative. In the past, certainly, if there was a a strong public opinion against a particular issue, that would, would hold sway. Uh, that is no longer a binding situation in terms of the political outcomes, uh, especially with the media being so dedicated to, uh, to leftist ideology, with the, the radical left driving all the... And there are good Democrats out there. Let's, let's acknowledge that. But have, they have no influence on the, the public position of the party. Uh, I, I, I guess one of my sources of optimism is Buttigieg, Buttigieg uh, came out with a uh, proposal that people be taxed on mileage driven, and that, that was immediately put to rest. So I, I think that that supports your position essentially, which is it was so unpopular that the, the administration itself disavowed itself from it. Yeah. But on the other hand, there are stronger positions, particularly as it pertains to uh, making legal the illegal aspects of the 2020 vote, as documented through the H.R. Uh, 1 legislation, uh, that is not uh, having any pushback, at least significant enough uh, to cause it to be defeated. And will they do end the filibuster? I think there's every reason to believe that will happen. You've already pointed out in the conversation, Bob, exactly the implications of what it would mean if the filibuster is done away with. Yeah, no, no, there's no question about it. However, there's a lot of pushback on gun control. Apparently, that's caving that the whole thing. So I'm I'm not uh, as I'm not as pessimistic as you are with regard to what, what's going to happen with regard to, for example, even this HR one. Uh, I think there could be significant changes. If not, uh, you know, I'm sure it's going to go through in some fashion. But I think there could be significant changes before it's passed. Bob, I'd like to agree with you, but if we look at the last 30 years of American history and where we are now as compared to where we were then, uh, nothing 30 years ago or very few things 30 years ago that were, uh, that were seen as peripheral issues or radical issues, uh, very few of them have not become operative. So I, I understand your, your point, and I, I, I think it's a perfectly valid intellectual point. Uh, on the other hand, I have seen America move dramatically uh, into new areas of extreme radical positions uh, that have not been blunted by any pushback, certainly from the media and for the most part from the Republican Party. Bob. Well, I will say this. I, I certainly acknowledge the, uh, the effort. I can see that. To me, this administration is basically saying, you know, we realize that uh, you're not on board with this. We just don't care. We're moving forward with our agenda. We don't care what the American people think. This whole America first nonsense is not going to stand up because we have 
constituents that we have to serve that got us elected, and we're we're going to bound and determined to support them, and and can, so we can have their continued support. That's what I see right now. I just I have a belief that enough people are going to see through this and basically say enough is enough. We're not going to allow it to happen. Well, as always, I want you to be right. I, I don't want my, and I'm, I don't see myself, obviously, as pessimistic. I, I guess I would position myself as realistic, uh, which, again, would make you unrealistic. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, this, I, I, don't, well, I don't mean to suggest that. Let me, let, me, uh, and let me concede, for example, that I said that uh, Trump would be elected. And he, quite frankly, I think he was elected. But irrespective, the powers that be, uh, he ended up not getting, uh, not winning the uh, presidential election. So, uh, I mean, uh, I've been, I have to just acknowledge the fact that you've been right more often than you've been wrong. Uh, do, do you realize, Bob, what you just said within some of the uh, suggested uh, proposals from this administration would make you ineligible to get a government clearance? <laughs> that That is one of the, the, uh, the proposals right now is that anyone who suggests that the 2020 election was fraudulent would be denied uh, government clearance uh, for any any particular uh, capacity that that it was needed. Uh, so you know we're looking at um, and just as a specific anecdotal situation, uh, Matt Gates and I. You know I don't know the specific of Matt Gates' situation, uh, congressman from Florida, but he has certainly been one of the the strongest and most consistent conservative voices coming out of the House of Representatives. And, and of course now he's being accused of of sexual indiscretions and uh you know and is that true no longer can we have any reliability in the in the circumstance so i think we can say that uh, matt gates and the accusation against matt gates is an all great likelihood and i can't document this an all great likelihood politically motivated and we're going to see more and more of this cancel culture focused at white heterosexual males of a conservative nature uh, to, to shut down their voices. No, and, and as those voices get shut down, others will become less less willing uh, to engage in the public debate. I, I wanted to, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I wanted to research this more before I talked about it on the show, but uh, apparently Matt Gates has proof that our U.S. tax dollars are being used to pay off the coyotes get bringing people across the border. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's done some sensational research. He certainly historically has been a strong uh, Trump supporter. Um, uh, and he's, you know, again, he is, uh, if you're going to talk about a person that the left would find unacceptable, uh, perhaps there's no one less acceptable than, than Matt Gates. So, <laughs> you're right. uh, again, I don't know all the details, although I did hear him last night on, on Tucker uh, explaining the situation. It seems very complicated to me, but uh, whether it's true, uh, no longer is there any absolute source of truth in this society, Bob. There's, there's no one we can turn to in this society that we can... Uh, rely on to give us the truth right. other than me and you of course uh, right other than you, you you and i andy again i just genuinely appreciate uh, your commentary the name of the book is josephus of oz i hope you'll check it out andy thank you so much for joining us see you later Bob. all right thank you so much coming up we're going to be visiting with larry bell endowed professor at the university of houston at space architecture uh, that and more right here in the bob harden show on the bob harden broadcasting network <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, Downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. Do you
you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity, maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's also the author of several books. His latest is What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. Great read. I finished reading it last week, and I just really encourage you to get a copy and read it yourself. What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Bob, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Always a pleasure, Professor. And uh, you write, uh, well, maybe bi-weekly, at least weekly, uh, columns for Newsmax. Uh, Your column is called On Point, and your latest is something that I was looking forward to discussing with you. Biden pressed on border problems. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yeah, it's a mess, isn't it? It Um, is a mess. It's it's really a crisis, and it's a... it's a crisis for the a lot of the migrants that are coming in. It's certainly a crisis for for you know for the country, and I think it's a it's a crisis for the Biden administration. It's one that's self-made, of course, and uh, I think they're they're stuck with it now. They don't have the they don't have the orange man to blame for things, and so now they own it. They do own it, indeed. And in fact, to me, I don't know how it looks to you, but. Uh, he tried to pass this thing off to Kamala uh, to to intercede and uh, handle the issue to go down and take a look at it. She decided, no, not going to do that, Joe. Looks like I think she just told him to stick it. <laughs> and she said, I'm going to look into the causes of this as, as opposed to trying to solve the problem. So I don't know if they just agreed to buy time or whether she just genuinely didn't want to do the role that he asked her to do. But what are your thoughts? Well, I just think they see it as a no-win. If they go down to the border, they can't really avoid, uh, you know, confronting the issue. And uh, you know, when if you saw that, you know, the you know, Senator Cruz's visit to the border, and he was uh, there was a, I felt kind of sorry for her. There was a woman there who was, was her duty was to block anyone from photographing, you know, the conditions in there, and she was. Valiantly trying to, you know, to block the camera, and you know, and Cruz and others were pretty persistent that they weren't going to let this happen. I really felt empathetic for her because uh, you know they're so desperate to really not have the public see what's going on. But uh, you know, the conditions are are horrible, and you you hear that they're at you know fifteen hundred percent capacity in some of these pods, and and you know it's 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 uh. It's an irony because they, you know, they made such a big thing about the Trump's cages that children were in. Of course, they were built by the they were built by the Obama and Biden administration. Those cages, and they were a lot of the photographs that were used are actually from that era. But uh, you know, the conditions are deplorable, and 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 the COVID, of course, makes it terribly worse because we think about you know the you know the crowding and it's their virtual. You know, petri dishes for you know for COVID spreading, and then and then there being you know these these young kids and and they're being released into the into the border towns and then on to, to a neighborhood near you and and uh, and and of course at a time when we're going to have you know we're 
triple and quadruple masks, you know, to protect each other from our from our grandchildren. Uh, <laughs> you know, we have we have these you know these you know these you know, these kids being sent all over the dispatch all over the country. And on top of that, you know, you hear these horror stories about you know how they're sexually abused and 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 and, and uh, you know sold into a virtual indentureship by the coyotes and use, using this as a distraction then so they can run fentanyl and other drugs in, you know, uh, in behind them or a couple miles up the road. So uh, yeah. it's, it's a terrible situation. It is a terrible situation, but it it, uh, it all adds up in my mind to to the uh, this administration condoning what's going on. I think they literally have it as part of their agendas to open the borders and bring and allow these people to come in. I would be so upset if I were a taxpayer in San Diego County, where the schools are closed to the kids and that are, you know, children of citizens of the of the United States in San Diego County. And the the teachers aren't teaching there, but they're teaching illegal immigrants at, at a place in uh, San Diego. I, I just, just can't believe this. Well, it's pretty hard to miss the pattern. You have these undocumented Democratic voters coming in, which is very convenient, of course. And there's endless waves of them now. And they expect in the next several months, maybe seven months, they'll be this this trend will be accelerating. At the same time, Democrats are are trying to get. Uh, uh, so-called undocumented aliens counted in the census so they can redistribute, you know, the census and get, you know, get uh, more, uh, you know, representatives in Congress and, you know, these, you know, redistrict you know, some of these areas using uh, so-called undocumented, you know, uh, citizens. And, yeah. and so it's, it's pretty hard to miss the bigger picture on this. It certainly is, Professor, and uh, I don't know how this is all going to end up, but it uh, uh, seems to me uh, the, the president said, uh, former President Trump said he's going to go to the border. I mean, how's this going to end? I mean, do you have any thoughts about uh, how, how this is going to end up? To me, everything hinges on, on the 2020 congressional elections because, you you know, we're, it's a question of how, and I think you and I, Bob, have discussed this before about you know, when does the public wake up to what's going on? And it does when it becomes a kitchen table uh, issue and when it becomes a personal issue. And I think, you know, they've been able to try to stop the visual of these people, you know, hordes and, you know, these huge waves of people coming across the border. That's one thing. But the border towns are getting hit, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and they're really in distress. Brownsville and other, you know, Texas and other border towns where, where they're they're getting the brunt of this, and then they're they're being act, you know, used as processing centers for any any kind of COVID testing that occurs, and then they put them on buses to to other communities, and and so you know it's it's uh, I think a question of at what point uh, does the media uh, begin to you know give some exposure to this and. It's a humanitarian crisis. It's an economic crisis. It's a health crisis. It's a national security crisis. And uh, unless we, and, and so I think with the congressional elections, which is different than the you know the presidential elections, these congressional elections are are really about state and local issues. And mm -hmm. So things like the Keystone Pipeline being canceled and drilling and so on. Is you look at uh, New Mexico, for example, it's heavily dependent on on drilling, and, and most of their land, a lot of their land is federal land, so, you know, the, the drilling and so on pays for their schools and so on, and and uh, New Mexico had gone 11% for Biden in the last election. So you got New Mexico, you got uh, you got Joe Munchen and, you know, in West, West Virginia, who's, who's, who's going to be pivotal on this uh, uh, filibuster vote thing, and, and, uh, and he's getting a lot of Pressure, I'm sure, from his from his state people and so on, and so so it, it's a it's a question that if we can if we can get the Congress get the control of the Congress back, and only at that point can we really uh, address the border problem and and you know this this horrific uh, was HR one now SR one the Senate rule for basically restructuring all the voting in the country that hmm. that would ensure that Democrats get you know. 
and be a one-party country for the next few generations because because uh, they'll have you know have control of the House and the Senate. You know, the, uh, and, and 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 it's it's a uh, tw- you know twenty twenty two. I think is the most consequential election that we've had in American history. At least that's my view. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Professor. Again. Uh, on point and at newsmax.com is the website. I also encourage you to read uh, Larry's latest book. He's written several, but his latest is What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. It's a great read. Larry, genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you so much. My pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tomorrow we're going to visit with Keith Law, co founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Seton Motley is the founder and publisher of. Uh, Less government. Bill Barnett is our former mayor, and Dr. Uh, George Markovich will be joining us. He's an orthopedic surgeon here in our community. In fact, he replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I'm very grateful for it. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>